today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, I want to talk about vaccines. And it looks like the vaccine uh, program and protocol, especially here in Ontario, is going to ramp up pretty quickly. Now, at this stage, only about 11% of people across the province of Ontario are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. But that number could get a whole lot bigger pretty soon. Global Sandy Salerno has the details. Province is now taking bookings for anyone who had their first shot of Pfizer or Moderna on or before May the 9th. In order to be eligible, you have to live in one of seven Delta variant hot zones. Most of them are in the GTA and include Toronto, Peel, Halton and York. AstraZeneca users are not being left out jab number two, regardless if you stick with AZ or mix it up with an mRNA vaccine, can now be booked sooner as well. This after the province announced on the weekend it would shorten the duration between doses to eight weeks instead of 12. The change is seen as welcome news for those who want to be fully vaccinated as soon as possible. A long road and just, you know, excited to finally hopefully have a light at the end of the tunnel. It's also a big week for vaccine delivery in this country. Canada is set to receive around nine and a half million doses, and that's thanks mostly to a massive infusion of shots coming from Moderna. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So uh, what does this mean to you and me uh, who are still waiting for a second shot? Uh, joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Brian Lichty, who is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at the McMaster Immunology Research Center. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, no problem. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks very much. I'm, I'm kind of excited about the fact that I can get my second shot uh, and try to book that online today, but that's the, another issue. We'll get to that in a couple of seconds. I wanted to begin, if I could, though, Doctor, talking about the uh, the announcement about AstraZeneca and shortening that period between first and second shots. Uh, a lot of jurisdictions had already done this. Uh, why was Ontario so late to the party? I think it was to do with supply and, and still wanting to make sure as many people as possible at least had the first dose. Okay, but so now we've got to a point where the supply is obviously jumped up a bunch, and uh, we have the luxury and the advantage of being able to accelerate that second dose uh, so that people get fully protected, which really matters for this Delta variant, as I'm sure your listeners have heard. One dose protects you from um, the original version and most of the variants, but that Delta variant it seems like to really be protected, you need that second dose. Are you comfortable with the way the province is doing this, though? Those hotspots that they talked about in the uh, report we just read uh, didn't include an awful lot of communities that are listening to us right now and kind of saying, hey, what about us? We're, we're worried about the Delta variant, too. Well, I suspect that given that it's pretty new, pretty fresh news that uh, Moderna's, you know, in, increasing the number of uh, doses available, that uh, this may change pretty soon, that that second dose is going to become available more widely uh, and sooner than uh, than planned. Are you comfortable? You just talked about the efficacy of, of that second shot. Uh, are you comfortable that uh, that we can really, you know, get this thing down to where it should be? Uh, because we're always using the comparator about what happened with the the Delta variant in India, of course. And uh, I understand that a lot, an awful lot of people there didn't get that second shot anyway. So that obviously added, I think, plus there's some other factors I think you told us about last week uh, that probably contributed to the terrible occurrence that happened in India. But the fact that we seem to have it under control and the fact that there's a lot more vaccines coming here are you confident that we're going to have a pretty decent summer uh, i hope so um, <laughs> you know it's, nobody has that crystal ball i don't think but uh you know the data says that um two doses uh and another two weeks for that to really kick in gives pretty good protection at least keeps people out of the hospital and it uh limits the spread of even the delta variant and so if enough people can manage to get to that point 
uh, in the next month or so, um, at least the last part of our summer will be getting back to normal. When you see some of the events going on uh, south of the border, uh, concerts, uh, sporting events, things of this nature, uh, where they're not quite at full capacity, but very close to it these days, uh, many of them not wearing masks, and I, which kind of bothers me too. Uh, do you get the sense sometimes that some jurisdictions anyway are maybe going too quickly on this? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, part of the problem is, 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 and will continue to be in many places, getting that last portion of the population <clears throat> vaccinated so that we, we have enough herd immunity to, to, to allow that sort of behavior, really. Um, and, and, of course, you know, we've all heard of some places give, you know, having lotteries and, and stuff like that just to try and get us over the line to get enough people vaccinated to, uh, to make it okay to do, uh, to that, to do that. I'm okay with that. I know some people have been very uh, critical of that situation, but I mean, if it gets the people in there and gets them that second shot or the first shot, I guess, even in some cases, I, I don't see that there's any harm there. No, I don't think there's any harm at all. Um, the truth is, uh, it's uh, an end to a means, right? So, um, even if, even if you know, say the province of Alberta puts some, you know, decent amount of money into some of these lotteries to to get to that point, uh, healthcare is very expensive. So, uh, in a situation where we're a single payer and the province is going to have to foot the bill if not enough people get vaccinated and the Delta variant spreads and we end up in a fourth wave with, you know, lots of people in ICU. It's cheaper to have a lottery. Absolutely. When you, when you look at the cost that's going on here. But uh, the number that we talked about uh, here in Ontario, anyway, as of this morning, uh, was about 11% of the population are fully vaccinated with both doses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a very high number compared to some other jurisdictions. Where should we be to, where we can talk about immunity and, and, and things of this nature? Are we still looking at 70 75%? Yeah, I think that that's still the number that they're hoping for um, until you have the modeling says that there's enough herd immunity to to limit things. Of course, one dose does give um, a degree of protection and gets and keeps the vast majority of people out of the hospital. So um, I don't know what the number actually in reality would be for uh, a mixture of people who are fully vaccinated and a mixture mixed with people who have had one dose. Just I want to slip back to the AstraZeneca situation for a second. When you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, there seemed to be some vaccine hesitancy, some, and, and with, I guess, some justification because of the concerns about blood clotting, as remote as it was. I mean, you don't want to be that one person in 600,000. Uh, so there's a concern about that, and a lot of folks, I guess, were kind of backing away. Uh, there's been some new developments, of course, in the last couple of weeks, one of them being the fact that you know people that had AstraZeneca uh, can opt for one of the other vaccines if they so choose for the second one. The other one, though, seems to be there There seems to be some, con- well, there was concern about the blood clotting, but there's been a lot of work done about that. Uh, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, a, a number of your colleagues at McMaster have done some uh, some great work about that, about, about identifying uh, the, the potential for blood clots, and there's a treatment now that they can use, uh, which is, is, in fact, you're one of those unfortunate individuals that develops those blood clots, that there is a, a protocol now that can be followed. Do you think this is going to ease people's concerns about, about that vaccine? Um. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's always, um, you know, as a scientist, it's it's comforting to to know that we understand 
um, what's going on in that situation in terms of what's causing the blood clotting and how to deal with it. But the, the truth is, it, it's really that first dose is the you know the the, the risky one. And um, to my knowledge, they've basically backed off using that as a first dose vaccine. So if people have already had the AstraZeneca and then we're fine, there's no worry about the second dose as a booster. And the reality is that um, now we're going to have such a good supply of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and you can mix and match that the vast majority of people can just go ahead and get you know, their second shot uh, as an mRNA vaccine and away you go. Uh, is it fair to say that the, the Pfizer and the Moderna are, are essentially the same uh, the, uh, composition-wise? They're, they're they're so similar that I I would say that it's it's um it's reasonable to consider them the same. So they're interchangeable too. Or would your recommendation yeah. recommendation be, for instance, if I, I had Pfizer as a first shot, I should get Pfizer as the second, or would Moderna be a substitute that I could consider? It can be either or. Okay, so that's and that. I'm sure that the province has said that um, you you can mix and match um, in any scenario. So what, if you regardless of your first one. Your second one can be any of the above, except if you did not get AstraZeneca first, um, you should not switch to AstraZeneca for the second one. I see. Okay. Uh, the other thing I, I was intrigued, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on at the uh, the G7 meeting, of course. Uh, the G7 leaders uh, made a commitment to, to supply drugs to, to the rest of the world uh, through some of the agencies that were there. And, and a part of Canada's announcement was for Johnson & Johnson. And that's that's a, a vaccine that's kind of fallen off everybody's radar in the last little while. Uh, there were some concerns about that. What, what have you heard about that, Doctor, is, is the latest update about J&J? Um, I'm not aware that anything's really changed. Um, a couple of the advantages for that one, especially for um, um, countries that have, you know, a less advanced infrastructure to deal with these, the cold chain needed for the mRNA vaccines, is that uh, it's a little um, more stable, so uh, the concerns aren't as extreme as for the mRNA vaccines. And um, it was developed as a single-dose vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in parts of the world where it's hard to keep track of who's had, who's had a shot, and whether or not, you know, they're due for the second one, a, a one-shot vaccine that has, you know, some ability to protect people and prevent spread of the virus is, is pretty attractive. So it makes sense for us to share whatever we had, um, you know, uh, reserved of a vaccine we're probably not going to need now to countries that can make good use of it. Yeah, I can see that because we've noticed, well, even in the United States and, and I guess even to a certain extent here in Canada, uh, it's it's tough sometimes getting people in there for that second shot uh, and, you know, trying to track them down again and say, okay, it's time to come back in. One shot would would help. Uh, so I can understand the efficacy of the J&J, especially uh, exporting it to some of these other countries. It makes all kinds of sense. Uh, we, we talked about how long the vaccine is, is going to uh, be effective, though. And, and, and I know that they talked about perhaps, you know, we might need boosters, perhaps we might not. But the, 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 the ballgame's changed, though, hasn't it, Doctor, in the last couple of months because of the variants, especially the, the Delta variant that's come out there? It's, it's, it's a different perspective on this. I mean, I, I think a lot of the predictions and the projections that we saw about the efficacy of the vaccine was really just based on, on the first uh, COVID-19 that we were dealing with, not these ones that have, uh, these that have come since, since then anyway. Um, yeah, that's partly true. And you can't blame you know, the mathematical modelers for that because um, you can't make predictions about things you don't know are going to 
end up existing, right? So, um, and um, we haven't used these vaccines before. So already it was a bit of a black box in terms of how long are they going to remain effective. Um, two doses of most vaccines will give you decently long protection. Um, so there's no reason a priori to think that these won't perform as well as uh, vaccines we've used in the past. Will the virus change so much that we'll need some additional booster for some segments of the population in the future? It's hard to know, but um, you know the good news is everyone's already working on these things, um, so-called second-generation vaccines mm-hmm. that are designed to give a different sort of immunity that will that will provide a booster that um, you know helps protect. So that might be in the cards for the future. It's, I think it's a little too early to tell. What about mass production of these vaccines? I mean, we, you know, the supply seems to be catching up with the demand now. Uh, but, you know, in a perfect world, I think you'd probably like to see many more countries being able to, to produce the vaccines themselves. Uh, how difficult is that? I mean, there's infrastructure and a number of other things. And I know the federal government's tried to invest some money in Toronto and in Montreal uh, to get a couple of uh, circumstances up there up and running. Uh, but we talked about the sharing of vaccines, but there's also some discussion with the G7 uh, members about sharing the, the production techniques as well is, is that practical um at, to some level it is um the mrna vaccines are you know a new technology for the vaccine community so um not many facilities were set up to make such a vaccine um and unfortunately um maybe it's true that some countries like canada got a little complacent about the need for vaccines um, and let that infrastructure collapse and disappear over over the last number of years. And now we're playing catch-up. But I think most of these countries, in Canada included, have learned a lesson that you have to have, it's important for a nation like ours to have the ability to make our own vaccines in the future. So uh, we hopefully won't get caught with our pants down again. I don't want to say that, uh, that, you know, the pandemics are the new normal, but, I mean, we, I guess, have to understand that this is a real possibility. It's, I mean, it's hit us over the head pretty hard over the last year and a half now, and you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people didn't think uh, we could ever actually face something as severe as this that would happened on a global basis. No, of course not. I mean, it's a generational thing, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had other pandemics, you know. There have been flu pandemics in the not-too-distant past, um, that people will remember, but um, they weren't as severe and um, they were more similar to other infections we've had, other flus we've had circulate and um, probably existing vaccines or um, previous infections gave people some protection. This was a whole new you know, ball of wax and um, it led to a pandemic that you know, none of us have seen before. It doesn't mean it can't happen again, so it's prudent for governments to be a little more prepared just in case this happens again, because it could. Yeah, well, I hope they get that lesson uh, loud and clear from us. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.
Take care. Dr. Brian Litchie, of course, uh, a professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This past weekend uh, in the UK, uh, the G7 leaders met and made a strong commitment to try to vaccinate the rest of the world. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pledged 13 million surplus vaccines to help the world get immunized against COVID-19 as G7 leaders wrapped up the weekend summit in the UK. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. A number of these doses are on their way as we speak. Uh, More will come in the coming months. And as I pointed out, there will be, uh, because we know Canada was very successful in negotiating vaccine contracts, even more doses that were destined for Canada that we're going to be able to share around the world as uh, we see uh, Canadians getting vaccinated to higher and higher levels. It's a tall order. Uh, let's talk about it. Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program Professor John Curtin. Uh, Professor Curtin is the director of the G7 Research Group at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, great to be with you, Bill. Let me ask you uh, about the uh, enormity of, of the challenge here. Uh, the head of the World Health Organization uh, mentioned over the weekend uh, that to really get a handle on this and to try to, to keep this virus down, we need about 70% uh, of vaccination worldwide. Uh, that's a pretty tall order, to be sure. Uh, is this commitment from the G7 a good first step? Uh, yes, it's uh, actually a great first step. Um, you know, the amount they did in uh, one weekend, um, face-to-face, is enormously um, uh, promising uh, to get uh, the ball uh, rolling uh, in a really um, successful uh, way. Uh, but uh, before we uh, break out the champagne, as it were, uh, we'll need to wait and see uh, how many doses are actually delivered, um, not only to the poor people in the poor countries, but into their arms um, day by day uh, in the uh, coming uh, weeks. But I think Canadians... Um, uh, can uh, note um, and uh, appreciate um, their current federal government's uh, commitment. Um, a billion uh, doses donated uh, was the uh, G7 target at Cornwall. Uh, the Americans came up with uh, half of that. Uh, Joe Biden uh, promised uh, 500 uh, million uh, of them. And then uh, Justin Trudeau um, came up with uh, 100 million. Usually, Canada is only expected to come up with a one-tenth of what our friends in the United States do. So uh, Justin uh, provided uh, twice as much and then assured um, everyone in his concluding uh, news conference that they were actually rolling out already. Uh, They're on their way. So he has to keep up um, the pace. And he can uh, because all the uh, figures show that uh, amongst the... uh, big countries uh, in the world, um, the broader uh, group of uh, 20, Canada is number one in the world in the percentage of Canadians uh, who now have at least uh, one dose. So we have vaccines to share, and certainly uh, we have a duty to share them with our fellow uh, Canadian citizens who happen to live and work abroad uh, and their uh, families. And, of course, the uh, healthcare providers and others who take care of them out there. So it's in uh, our own immediate interest to do it, as well as um, the fundamental fact that what happens outside Canada won't stay there. Uh, we already know that as we're uh, struggling with the uh, Delta virus uh, variant uh, born in uh, India that is already infecting uh, Peel and could be the biggest one we face in Ontario in the coming weeks and months. I want to put that in perspective, too, because, you know, when they started uh, 
ordering these things. You know, we, we knew these were coming. This is late last year, of course. Uh, Canada actually got a pretty bad rap. I mean, they were considered to be hoarding in some circles because of all the orders that they had made, uh, and there was some concern about that. Is, is the announcement over the weekend from the G7 going to assuage some of those concerns? Oh, I think it is um, very much. Um, what we uh, know that is, uh, yeah, a couple of months ago, um, there was a criticism uh, that Canada was uh, hoarding uh, some of the vaccines it had uh, purchased and it was due to get under um, the WHO-centered uh, COVAX facility, as it was uh, called. Uh, but that was the same time uh, when uh, the federal government was uh, also being criticized for actually not ensuring that all the other doses uh, we had ordered um, from Pfizer and AstraZeneca directly uh, were arriving in uh, Canada, and there was no greater critic uh, than uh, the Premier of Ontario, uh, Doug Ford, uh, right? Mm-hmm. You can understand why uh, Justin was a bit uh, cautious about giving away um, our COVAX ones until he could be sure that we were uh, meeting um, the promises uh, to the Canadian people uh, that uh, he had already uh, given them. But now that we're number one um, in the world, uh, he's got uh, vaccines to spare and is uh, admirably uh, starting to give them away uh, big time. Uh, the question that remains is uh, how much more uh, is his government going to do uh, to support the healthcare systems out there in countries like Haiti comes to mind, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you have a healthcare system with healthcare workers who can effectively um, take the vaccines uh, from the refrigerators and um, safely and effectively and quickly actually put the needle uh, into uh, people's arms, uh, all of these uh, doses um, put on planes uh, really won't save lives. How do you approach something like this? In, in, in your experience, in, the, in these things that you've studied over the years about this, I mean, you know, the best of intentions, whether it's aid for Haiti or other countries that are, you know, well, it's a natural disaster or maybe just some of the terrible living conditions in which a number of citizens are living in. We, we try to be generous in this country and try to give what we can. The concern always is, okay, how does it get from the loading dock uh, to the villages, to the people? Uh, that's that's got to be part of the equation here. Do they plan for that? Is uh, do you feel confident that the the organizations uh, through the World Health Organization, uh, Covax, and and of course the the Act Accelerator, uh, have the technology and the capability of actually delivering? Oh uh, yeah, I'm very confident uh, on that because um, the WHO centered system have been running um, actual vaccination programs for uh, decades. One of the most successful uh, is one that um, Canada pioneered, uh, the Right Honourable um, Paul Martin, polio, uh, right? Vaccinating people to uh, prevent uh, polio. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, Paul Martin had a personal stake. Uh, he had polio when he was a kid. So did his dad. Uh, the Americans got it because, uh, you know, FDR, their president, um, the same um, thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, more recently, um, they've confronted um, Ebola, uh, other diseases of a coronavirus um, sort. Uh, sadly, we don't have um, a vaccine yet um, that would effectively uh, prevent uh, HIV uh, AIDS, uh, one of the biggest um, killers in Africa to this uh, day. But there's still immense experience for that. 
And uh, but the whole United Nations system basically has its own Air Force, right? Um, it's uh, primarily operated um, by the World Food Program, right? Because we've been delivering uh, food and getting into people's uh, mouths in the worst um, conflict-ridden uh, civil war situations um, for uh, decades uh, now. So uh, we badly need um, uh, a UN system whose most effective um, functional organizations, the World Food Program and the WHO itself, uh, work and have the resources. That's why uh, I was pleased to see that the uh, Cornwall G7 Summit also promised to uh, strengthen the World Health Organization as the central institution uh, to take care of uh, not only the current uh, health crisis, uh, COVID, but... um, Health for all, uh, in its broadest um, definition. Um, so, um, you know, you need the back office. Uh, you need the WHO to uh, have um, Canadians and everyone's back. Uh, and so far, so good. They just need more um, capacity because, um, you know, uh, we just never know when we're going to hit uh, phase. Not only the next variant of um, COVID, but the next pandemic, uh, which could uh, even be a lot worse uh, than the one we're um, combating now. Professor, is there a political side to the, uh, the G7 announcement over the weekend? And, and I just to put it in context for our listeners, we do know that Russia and China have also been helping out other countries and exporting some of their vaccines. Uh, and it would behoove members of the G7, I guess, to have those countries that may be on the uh, on the fence uh, on some of the geopolitical things going on to, to not be relying on China and Russia and instead think that the G7 are their friends. Uh, is, is, is there a political win here for the G7 to, to get this out in the numbers that they're talking about? Oh, very much so. A political win for the G7, but more broadly, a political win for um, the world uh, because... Um, From the beginning, it was uh, G7 countries uh, that had invented and were producing and rolling out uh, the fully safe, uh, the fully uh, effective, uh, the fully tested, and the fully transparent um, vaccines. And uh, the Russian uh, Sputnik uh, and the Chinese uh, ones uh, didn't meet all of those um, criteria. Uh, But now uh, we've got uh, good scientific evidence. Um, that the Russian one actually uh, does um, work. Um, and uh, there's increasing confidence uh, that the Chinese ones do too. So I think this is uh, a great competition. Do you want uh, one of the ones um, from uh, the West or one of the ones from Russia or um, China? And uh, if they're going into the poorest countries in the world, and saying, take mine, um, not theirs. Uh, it's great that countries uh, have a choice. So the key thing to look at is how many vaccines in total um, are being uh, sent to, given to poor people uh, in uh, poor countries, and not whose flag uh, might be on the um, you know package <laughs> in the container uh, that they're uh, brought uh, into. Uh, so... Uh, what we do need to uh, look at next is when we can develop the uh, capacity to manufacture vaccines 
and indeed uh, over time to invent them on continents uh, like Africa, in um, countries uh, like uh, Brazil, and um, more even uh, in India, whose Serum Institute has been a great uh, contributor of the pharmacy of the uh, world. So even with um, the West and um, the Chinese and Russia ones, it's uh, only um, a start that we, I think, uh, would want more countries to be able to invent uh, and uh, produce their own at uh, home. And the federal government is um, spending much of our uh, taxpayers' dollars to create manufacturing capacity uh, here at uh, home, and we need more of that, too. Well, with that in mind, and I, I would don't want to be so bold as to actually predict here that think happy days are here again, but uh, with the announcements about the supplies, not just that we're exporting, but the stuff that's coming in right now, uh, and the Novavax announcement that they're, they're ready to get going now too, uh, can we simply say that those dark days where there were interruptions of the supply chain are behind us now? Uh, well, it is, to uh, borrow a phrase from Winston Churchill, uh, either the uh, end of the beginning <laughs> or conceivably um, the beginning of the uh, end. But look, um, we don't know just how good uh, the vaccines going into um, the arms of the Canadians, number one in the G20, actually are against um, the Delta variant, um, you know, proliferating in uh, Peel uh, next door to Hamilton and Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, too. And we don't know uh, how well they'll work against um, the next letter in the uh, Greek alphabet when it pops up. So, um uh, a new war uh, may begin uh, within a matter of uh, weeks or uh, months. So uh, even though um, we're getting um, billions of doses uh, out to uh, the world over the coming uh, months of the vaccines we've invented already, uh, we know work against um, the basic uh, COVID-19 and variants uh, A, B, C, and uh, Probably to some extent, uh, D, you know, uh, it's always um, E popping up, uh, which is uh, very likely, um, and we still don't know what the answer is there. So everybody has to uh, get their dose as soon as they can um, and keep wearing their masks and social uh, distancing until we uh, hit herd immunity in um, Canada, and we're not there yet. But I hit herd immunity um, in all of the other places uh, where our uh, families, friends, fellow citizens live and uh, where Canadians um, travel to. So uh, a lot still to do. I've got a minute or so left here. I just want to get your read on, on the, the meeting that happened over the weekend at the UK, if I could, Professor, you, as you've studied these over the years, uh, the political dynamic within the G7 themselves. We know that Angela Merkel, of course, is, is leaving uh, in a couple of months, and uh, there will be a power vacuum there, obviously, because she was obviously one of the leaders within the G7 and and, and very intuitive with a, a number of global issues. Uh, there's some speculation now that, uh, that Canada and, and our Prime Minister may want to take a more active 
active role and more of a leadership role uh, with the G7. I think one of the takeaways certainly over the weekend was, yeah, the United States is back. I think President Biden uh, made that pretty clear that, you know, he's back here and he's fully supportive as opposed to his uh, his predecessor. But is there a, a larger role for Canada to play in the G7 now? Oh, I think very much so for uh, a number of uh, reasons. One, because um, Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister of Canada, and uh, one of the central issues, uh, maybe even uh, more important than um, COVID uh, at the Cornwall Summit, uh, was climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister of Canada that is the number one um, natural superpower in the world. Uh, nature-based solutions, uh, number one in fresh water, coastlines, boreal um, forests, uh, peatland number two, so much um, else. So um, as we uh, ramp up, mobilize the full power of nature to combat climate change, you know, sinks to suck um, the poison from the atmosphere uh, down and uh, kill them uh, back here uh, on Earth. Canada is uh, number one. And of course, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, is in the lead, has been since the start in the G7 uh, on um, gender equality, uh, girls' um, education. What uh, we do need them to um, do more on is um, having the G7 give um, a full um, power to indigenous peoples as full partners uh, in the G7's uh, fight uh, against climate change through nature, and uh, many other things uh, as uh, well. Um, So uh, he's the one who uh, um, has the responsibility uh, to pioneer uh, that um, at the next summit uh, in Germany next year. Next year, and well, of course, most of that same bunch are right over in Brussels right now for the NATO meeting. So I'm sure those discussions will be ongoing as well. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Okay, thank you. Take care, Professor John Curtin, director of the G7 Research Group at uh, the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about uh, the tragic events, of course, in London uh, last Sunday uh, have certainly uh, engendered a conversation about racism and homophobia in this country and Islamophobia as well. Uh, and it's on people's minds these days, quite frankly. About 300 people attended a community vigil outside Hamilton City Hall on Saturday. That was the same day that an emotional funeral service was held for the family in London. And local imam Ayman Tatahir says Islamophobia is real. I've sat many times in tears in my own office trying to reflect on this and find why. What is it? What have motivated these sick people to do what they're doing to us? We're individuals who are contributing to the welfare of the society in which we're living in. What is it that motivates them to kill? It's a it's a tragic situation, uh, but there are some people that said, well, you know, you shouldn't be surprised by this. This has been happening for years, for generations in this country. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. David Hoffman. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, of course, is an associate professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. That's my pleasure, Bill. Glad to be back. I- Last week, I had a discussion with uh, Phil Gursky, who, of course, worked at CSIS. He's an author now. Uh, the last book he wrote is The History of Terrorism and Racism in Canada. Uh, and it goes back to, well, before 1867, really. Uh, so it has been here as long as we have been a country. Uh, 
have we just turned a blind eye to this and pretended it's not there for so many years? Oh, I know Phil very well, and I know his work, and, and I respect it. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that was a great conversation. Um, I mean, when we look back to uh, as far as 1867, that's a different day and age, and uh, not excusing any types of, of, of uh, Islamophobia and uh, anti-Semitism and, and uh, racism that, that was part of society during that time. It was, it was a lot more accepted. I think that that's, yeah, your average listener would, would be aware of that. Um, the modern incarnation of, of, um, of right-wing extremism and, and uh, the, I guess, uh, the progenitor of the, the types of Islamophobia and hatred and racism we see today, I mean, it, it could be uh, traced as early as uh, the influx of the Ku Klux Klan into Canada, which uh, is usually a surprise when I talk to people. They're surprised to realize, one, the Ku Klux Klan was here, and two, they've been here for 120 years. Um, and in fact, in my home community of Fredericton, they're still kicking around and have been active. As, 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 I mean, the last time they saw it, they popped up on my radar in 2017 in a rec- recruitment drive. I mean, this is something that uh, at least the modern incarnation of, of uh, racism, hatred, and uh, uh, Islamophobia is, is, <laughs> is, has been present here again, as you mentioned, pre-World War II and, and, and for the last century or more. My dad, my dad was a, a bit of a history buff for the city of Hamilton, loved the city so dearly, and he used to show me some old pictures that he'd actually picked up from the library and other sources. And there's a Ku Klux Klan parade on James Street North in Hamilton. This was back in, in the 1930s, I think it was, or 40s, uh, right down the street. I mean, uh, there were, you know, riding horses, and it was as if it was the Santa Claus parade, and there, the, there was the Klan right in front of Hamilton City Hall in those days. And was, I was shocked when I saw that, and he said, yeah, they've, they've been here for a while. Yeah, it's, it's usually attributed to a, a southern, I mean, their, their roots are in the southern United States and they, their um, enclave, their stronghold still remains there. But, I mean, uh, in 1920s, again, I'm, I'm a little bit more cognizant of, of what's around me here in the Maritimes and the post to Ontario, but uh, there were members of public office here in Fredericton itself that were, were openly members of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and, and ran on, on, you know, hate-filled agendas. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was more normative back then. It's still as inexcusable as it is today, and, and we shouldn't whitewash history. Um, but it, it's it's rooted in, uh, I mean, a long-standing uh, um, uh, part of, of Canadian culture of of, of uh, the uh, small subset of people who take their uh, identity as white ethno-Europeans and take it too far and 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 essentially cast all of their personal and societal uh, troubles onto a specific group, and in this case of, of that horrible event that happened, uh, Muslims. In, in, in those days, of course, when we talk about that, a lot of it was directed towards blacks and, and indigenous people uh, yeah, because they were, they, were, they were here, and still is, of course. Uh, but with, uh, with immigration and uh, with the, the fact that the, I guess the world has become smaller now, Doctor, uh, and, and we're seeing people from other parts of the world, Asian people, African people, people from all over the place, uh, choosing Canada uh, to, to raise their families. Uh, it's, it's obviously has not only spread, but obviously they have become targets as they come into this country for people of this ilk anyway. I mean, it's, it's uh, a core sociological concept. It's, it's othering, right? It's, we tend to form our identities based upon groups or, or groups that we believe we belong to or we, we project our identities on groups that we, we actually belong to. Uh, and again, a certain subset of, of individuals will find meaning and purpose in, in uh, taking this othering to an extreme. The average person might, you know, 
we engage in othering on a, a day-to-day basis. The average person might, you know, other fans from from a rival hockey team, which is harmless fun. Uh, this type of othering, though, it's it's people who aren't like me, quote unquote, and therefore they aren't like me. Therefore, there's something insidious about them. And again, uh, this is not the. I, I still have a lot of faith in in the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians, but. Like any other uh, society in today, uh, there's there's a problem with a small subset of of uh, hate-filled individuals and, and an even smaller subset of them who will actually go out and commit an act of violence and, and, and shock us and remind us that this is, uh, while it's still a minority of individuals in, in our society, it's still a problem in our society. And, uh, I mean, we've seen this with, with the, the COVID-19 uh, anti-Asian crimes. There's been a massive upsw- upswing of... Uh, anti-Asian crimes, especially out west with uh, uh, COVID-19 and the, the anti-China rhetoric coming out of the U.S. So, I mean, it, it's, it's part of who we are as people. I, I'm, I'm not, and I'm not being defeatist in saying this is something we can't change, but this is, this is uh, pr- pretty much ingrained in, into to Western culture to a certain degree. And is it, it's ingrained in culture, but there seem to be, well, to use a phrase that I guess we've learned from the pandemic here, hotspots. Uh, mm-hmm. Where it seems to be more dangerous than others, and and uh, Bernie Farber from the the uh, Canadian Anti Hate Network has actually identified. He says, you know, from Toronto right down to Windsor, that includes Hamilton, KW, and a number of of cities in between. Uh, yeah. There are there are increased pockets there, and I, I I don't know if that's where most of the immigration was, and that's why the pushback is coming from. We're not exactly sure, but I mean, we've seen incidents of of that in in the Hamilton area over the last couple yeah. of years against LGBTQ communities and and Islamophobia, sadly, in situations like that. Uh, so it's 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 something that I guess we have to identify and and, and mm-hmm. realize. I, I'm sure you saw the comments uh, last week, uh, Doctor, from a former conservative uh, MP uh, in the London area, who said when he was campaigning door to door, he says it was a blatant anti-Islamic feelings by by the people, and they they were telling him at the door, "Hey, thank God you're white and you're running." And he says it's there. He says, "Don't turn your back on this." Yeah, um, this is actually something I'm I'm particularly interested in uh, personally in my own research. I've uh, I've actually started looking to this question of, of um, where uh, of hotspots, but more specifically, um, uh, uh, the urban effect of, of right-wing extremism and far-right extremism and hate and bias. And uh, this preliminary, I'm still doing a bunch of research on this, but uh, the data seems to show that in Canada, uh, it is urban areas. And again, our, our, our hypotheses are these are areas where uh, immigrants tend to come, tend to be visible, um, in Canada, we tend to attract highly skilled immigrants uh, from from other countries because of um, partly because of immigration laws, partly because there's oceans separating us between um, countries where immigration occurs, and we can kind of be selective. And this creates uh, an effect where we, we get highly visible, highly skilled individuals who, uh, at no fault of their own, will, will breed resentment again amongst a small subset. Of Canadians, what's very interesting, I found, is the the inverse in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. the the tendency for um, uh, right wing extremist activities tends to be in rural areas, not urban. In Canada, it's the flip side. Uh, still, don't know why yet, but I found that very interesting. So it, it's it's uh, I mean, there's there's it still needs to be explored more, but this is something uh, fascinating and, and something I think can help us understand how and why these people do what they do. Is, is it resentment? I mean, we've all heard the, the, the mantra, incorrect as it is, well, they're taking our jobs, that, that sort of yeah. thing. I mean, it, and, and that, just, that just feeds into this whole thing, doesn't it? It's too simplistic to say it's just resentment. We're not, we're not uh, human beings in our culture and the way we 
we uh, socialize and adopt beliefs in the way in these cases uh, radicalized towards violence. It, it's a, a complex myriad of factors, uh, both personal, both uh, uh, group-based, as well as societal. Uh, and it's a million-dollar question scholars of radicalization towards violence have been looking at for the past 30 years or so, and we still don't have a definitive answer. Um, I mean, the, the most recent research tends to point to uh, a mixture of personal grievances uh, that are blended with a variety of, of group and societal factors, as I've mentioned. And resentment is part of it. Uh, perceived, uh, it's the perceptions of the individual, which, again, resentment is part of it. If they, Whether it's real or not, if they, they pass their blame uh, on a certain group for all their woes, it's going to get them... Uh, further and further mired into this mindset. And it, it helps explain, I mean, it's easier for an individual to, to swallow the idea that they're, the reason they can't get a job or the reason they, they're they're uh, failing at life, it, you know, it isn't their fault. It must be some other person's fault. You know, I, I'm a white Christian male. Uh, you know, I should have all the benefits. Why is this, you know, so-and-so person uh, from so-and-so religion uh, succeeding? Well, I'm not. Well, it helps them swallow that pill. It's a tough pill to swallow. But uh, again, it's, it's just one of these questions where uh, we, as uh, I mean, the, the collective scholarly community interested in this area, are still trying to answer. How damaging is it, though, when our, our, our political leaders, who we look to for leadership and hopefully guidance, uh, espouse things like this? I'm, of course, I'm thinking of, of when Donald Trump got elected, and of course, initially, the Muslim ban, which yes. basically said, you know, we won't. We don't want these people coming into the country, which blanketed a, a whole uh, every Muslim. Apparently, now it was to be considered suspicious because of the yeah. that. That was the intent, really, and that was the message that was coming across. Yeah, uh, it's it's very problematic. Um, one of the things that, that my colleagues and I are, are essentially talking about when we, we speak to the public and when we are engaging in our research is, is uh, uh, what's been a, a slow creep uh, of what we call the normalization of hate. And again, it evokes back to the, the first question and the first issue we talked about, that this has been around for a while. And uh, when you have leaders of, of a country uh, essentially uh, casting suspicion or doubt on all Muslims, it's going to make it easier for the average person to uh, be more vocal about it. It's not like, he, it's not like someone like Donald Trump magically convinces people that, that Muslims are bad through his Muslim back. What it does is it's the same thing with a child to a parent, although a little bit more complex. You know, the, the child sees the parent do something, and they think it's okay for them to do it. So it, it allows these individuals to come out of the woodwork and feel more comfortable in spreading their ideas, in recruiting, uh, and in committing acts of violence. I mean, we saw a microcosm of that. Uh, I, I always bring this example up with the uh, Quebec Values Charters, Charter, uh, uh, what, six, seven years ago where uh, the uh, P2 government at the time tried to institute uh, uh, the Values Charter and uh, essentially banning religious symbols in the, the public workplace. And you saw an uptick in, uh, in, in anti-Muslim attacks with people getting their jobs ripped off. And this, again, it, it's when the leadership uh, engages in this type of rhetoric, it, it, it allows these people to feel uh, permitted to share their ideas. Uh, which is incredibly harmful. It's part, I mean, it, it's part of, of the duty of, of folks like you and, uh, and and community activists and grassroots leaders to uh, make this environment uh, or, or the Canadian environment um, less permissible or, or non-permissible for this type of rhetoric. And it, it means standing up and, and talking about this when, when awful events like this happen or doing something at, at the grassroots political level. 
Professor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. That's uh, Professor David Hoffman, of course, from the University of New Brunswick. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.